Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Well, here we go. Uh, welcome to Stories Are Soul Food. Sasp. The Sasp podcast. We are here with a special guest today, Francis Anon. Annan, I've heard lots of different versions on the, the interviews you've done on YouTube, so I was hoping to ask the source. Francis Annan, or Francis Anan. If it was my contemporaries, my my parents and my grandparents, they would say Anan. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anan. All right. Okay. And you've of heard course, it here. Uh, Francis Anan. We're here to do. I wouldn't have said it that way, so that's good. <laughs> I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> I figured it was better to ask. <laughs> he hasn't corrected me one time when I've I introduced him to people. <laughs> So I say Francis Anon. Anon. I think like Anon. Yeah. Yeah. A little um, Anon bread. It'll be Anan. No. <laughs> we got it. Yes. And of course, uh, this is for our LAMP, the Look at Moving Pictures Club. We like we weird do. acronyms. So Stories Are Soul Food, S-A-S-F, SASF. And then we have LAMP, Looking at Moving Pictures Club. Yeah. Right. And of course, we did Escape from Pretoria for uh, this month's LAMP pick. And it was really enjoyable. I heard of many wives having to leave the room. Uh, it was too stressful. This was the aim. One of the aims. <laughs> Such a sexist. <laughs> well, let's just say hopefully no husbands had to. I, well, maybe they did. I only heard about the wives, though. Maybe that's Wives <laughs> who stuck it out and husbands who had to step out. They yeah, probably like don't tattle. No. Exactly. That, that story doesn't get to. That one doesn't get to the big Indeed. screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, Francis. Uh, I was hoping to ask you, of course, about that movie, but also about your path to directorship. And I don't know what Nate wanted to ask you. Um, yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to talk broadly about the film, directing the film uh, and, and surrounding. And hopefully we have some questions from, from people who actually yep. watched it in advance and sent in questions. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, first off, it's a good film. It was really enjoyable. It's a great film. And I, I had a lot of fun showing, in my, showing my kids. Uh, I had seen it small. I told you I'd watch it on an airplane or something. And then I had to watch it bigger with them. And my frigid basement yep. was was great. And my wife did, in fact, stress out, as did my daughters. <laughs> so did my wife. It was the blanket over the face <laughs> in yeah. a couple of the scenes. <laughs> Edge of your seat. That seems to be the, the go-to phrase. Everyone seems to parcel this phrase out. So I'm glad. Yeah, it's good. But I, I can start. I'll start with the question would just be, how did you get into this film? How, what, what's the process of when, when did you become, cause you're the writer director on, on this project. Yeah. Where did that start? Was this your, I mean, it's, there's a book that's the source material. Written by Tim Jenkin, right? Yeah. And so did you find the IP and want to do this and was this your baby or did you get attached to it? How, how did that work? Yeah. So <clears throat> met some producers in 2011. Um, I was doing a short film competition. Um, didn't get through to the final stage, but kind of got on with the producers. They had had the rights to Tim Jenkins' novel, um, and and then they'd kind of lost them and got them and lost them. And so they gave me the book and said, look, you know, read this book, but we've lost the rights. Um, <laughs> about 18 months ago. Um, so I kind of devoured the book and thought, okay, well, you know, do go from, it's about a 385-page book, and by page 80, they're in the prison. So, you know, this film is an homage from Tim to the escape. You know, he yeah. actually did it, true event. And so he details it in, you know, granular detail. 
um, which I kind of liked. I liked a lot of French cinema, uh, Louis Melville, Louis Mallet, uh, Jacques Becker, uh, Robert Bresson. So that kind of very simple, the whole film was about this guy trying to, you know, get out of a room or trying to convince the girl to drink coffee, you know, whatever it is. And it becomes this rabbit hole. So I thought, well, that's what I think you need to do because the book is doing that. The book is happy to spend four pages talking about different types of wood consistency. Wood and cheese. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit Moby Dick when yeah. it starts just talking about whales. <laughs> yeah. Different types of whales. Different types of whales. Wood grains and like how to like going cross grain for the key structures and all of that. He goes in yeah. like deep dive. So I was like, I can kind of like that. I think most people will be bored by that, but I love that. <laughs> and how to go down the rabbit hole with him in a way that is more rich and exciting was like, great. So I got four highlighters and just highlighted the heck out of the whole thing. You know, cut from this to this, cut from that to that. And did I pitch them? I kind of didn't pitch them, I, I, but I did pitch them. I sort of said, look, this is how you need to do it. I think you need to lean in to the complexity and into mm. the hyper detail rather than gloss over it because that will just make the film feel like- Definitely. What's that? Yeah. yeah? Um, and so they were like, great. I love it. Fantastic. Um, and I think literally about, I don't know, a month later, the rights were due to expire. Uh, there was another producer in South Africa who had done nothing with the project. Uh, and so the rights went back to Tim. The producers went back. It was quite a lengthy process, but they got the rights back anyway. Um, they said, give us one more try. One more try, maybe two more tries. We've got a um, guy who likes the detail. Indeed. And this time yeah. in Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that was a that was a curveball. That was a that was a very final curveball. The there's the fly in the ointment. Um but yeah, so there was a period of time with another writer. Um I really felt that the script should lean much more heavily into the, the detail. And so they said, Well, you know, everyone said, Well, you should write it then. Um, and then so in late 20, So you got a writer fired. The first thing he did, is he? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a little bit, it's a, it's a bit blunt. Skeleton in the closet. But um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, even the writer himself said, you know, look, you seem to, you know, know what you want to do. You go and do it. Uh, and so I kind of just look at, I think this should be highlighted. That should go in, that should move in. We should do this. We should borrow down into this a bit more, not gloss over that. And did a rewrite, um, took quite a long time. Um, and then in August 2016, we went to Daniel Radcliffe, um, not knowing that his mum and grandparents were born in Cape Town. Did not know that. Okay. Um, uh, so we went to him and then we sat down, had a massive like two-hour conversation about geopolitical affairs and about socioeconomics and about housing, redlining and a whole bunch of stuff. And it was just like, okay, this is cool. Like Dan has a very big brain and he really um, does not, not only does not shy away from detail, but actually leans into it. It's perfect, exactly what I'm talking about. I don't want someone who's gonna get fatigued by all the hyper detail. Yeah. Mm. Great. Um, and so, yeah, I think- And, and, that the, and this kind of story, the, the hyper detail is everything. Because you are in such a closed, confined situation that you needed to feel closed and confined, if if you have broad broad strokes, it just is not interesting. I also it doesn't like boil it, the pot. You don't end up with yeah. the pressure. And right. it wouldn't be believable also. I, I think because I, I, I would be thinking, wait, they made a key out of wood. That How's that possible? Right. right? But now I have, you know, I watched how it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> the exact rotation of every arm in order to get the key in the exact right spot. That That kind of thing was very cool. You felt like you were problem solving with Radcliffe, not just... Not just I don't know. Watching and it also it. it also helps that it happened because if you had made it up, right, 
like, Hey, I have this, I, my Shawshank, I've got my Shawshank redemption story. And it's, it's about these guys making how many keys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. how they have to make how many different wooden keys in, 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 you know, stacked in line to get out of this place. And they People just have... happen to hide in this closet every <laughs> single time they need to. I mean, those kind of things were very cool. Very yeah. much, yeah. very much. It was, uh, it was fun. And really happened. The two films that I looked at was one called, um, there's a Robert, Robert Bresson film called A Man Escaped. This Norm is my next question for you. It's like, which, what were your film references? So there we go. Yeah. Well, it, it's Man just Escaped. A Man Escaped um, and another one called The Hole, Le Trou by Jacques Becker who died doing the post-production so his son had to take over the edit and finish the edit so random side point um but these films both made around 1959 1960 and their usp is rabbit hole they don't shy from the detail there's one shot in the hole and the true where there's some construction work going on in the prison and so there's lots of drilling and stuff and they take a little piece of metal from the corner of their bed and i kid you not it's about a four and a half minute shot <laughs> I, and it's they take some wooden slats off the floor and they wait until the drilling starts outside their cell and they bang in time with this super hard concrete you know kind of cement floor and you see in real time one shot unbroken they make a hole and they crack the whole thing and they just stand it and i thought that is so amazing because yeah. you're watching this thing happen i think they did a few takes and they would re-plaster the thing come back the next day you know shoot it again <laughs> amazing but I was like, that's what we need to do because I think you earn them opening the first door. You earn them getting to a certain part of the prison. Right. You, it's not just a five-minute montage. You yeah. really feel that after 28, 30 minutes, wow, they're at this stage. And that, I think, was really important. And in order to get that, you need to spend the time and not jump cut it. You need yeah. to not just do you know short, short things and, and think you're fatiguing the audience. Just got to lean into it. So yeah, so those are two references. So I wrote it like that it was you know the original draft you weren't in the prison until page 40 i really went down the rabbit hole they were they used to use invisible ink um to communicate to um anti-apartheid supporters they would send them a letter about i don't know you know whatever, <laughs> whatever. and the then when you would yeah something <laughs> like this or you know you've got to pay your tax bill or something and when you use this special paint on it it would say right anc is doing this and doing that and so i did a bunch of scenes and then the scene when they're ra the, the raid happens when they're they're raided at their flat i really you know went into it and everyone said it's too much you're not in the prison until page 44 the audience are going to die here i liked that original snatch of you going down this rabbit hole of these activists and then boom Getting, prison yeah. you know mm -hmm. but people thought it was a foot in two camps. Is it a prison movie, genre movie, or is it this bigger thing and we're not sure? And so let's make it a prison movie. So I had to kind of go in and do some work and condense it. I think it, it worked pretty well. The shift works, just the the pamphleteer bomb and, yep. we're, and we're off. Yeah. yeah. It's like, and we're getting massive sentences for this, you know, terrorism. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think, I think it does get you there quickly. I get that. But I was, I was very curious. I think it would have been harder though if you had done that. The one of the one of the coldest beats of the whole thing is that he never sees his girlfriend again. And if you actually had forty pages of backstory and establishing that relationship, that'd be interesting. But it also that'd be tough to would tie be, off. Would yeah. be difficult to forgive him for not having found a way. Well, I was I was actually going to ask you about Dennis Goldberg, right? As as some of the folks who are watching um, are seeing him as the villain, right? The example of a character who's too afraid to go for it. But then you watch Tim and he, he, because he escaped, his girlfriend got 
killed over it, right? Imprisoned and then died. And to me, it, it almost seemed like you weren't making a judgment on those two necessarily. And I wondered, I wondered what your, your take is on that. Did you try to maintain a bit of suspension of dis or suspension of judgment on the Dennis Goldberg character, or uh, how did you view him? Well, a lot of things that, yeah, in real life is amazing. So about two years before we shot, I went up to Cape Town and went to his villa, and we, I think, I recorded him for about three hours. <laughs> it was just amazing. You just sat there and. <gasps> with your mouth hung open. Mm -hmm. um, he had story after story, because um, obviously he spent a lot of time with Mandela and Kathrada and Sisulu, Walter Sisulu and all these greats. Um, so he was amazing. Um, in terms of the story, in terms of the, 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 the book, um, there was a massive argument, a huge argument, uh, about 24 hours before they escaped. And there was a very staunch um, anti-escape yeah. Uh, sentiment. Prisoners of conscience. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which was centered around Dennis Goldberg. He was there for three life sentences. So the idea was not to vilify him. There was there were some notes of the script that, you know, we need a central villain. And I felt like the prison was the villain. I felt like yeah. the, the doors were the, the villain. I don't think you needed necessarily to have, uh, you know, a personified kind of demonic villain. But um, I couldn't escape the fact that Dennis Goldberg and the people around him were very much against the idea of escape from a principally yeah. ideological viewpoint, right? Um, we're here to bear the unjust burden and that's part of the resistance. And I think they were both right. And so it was difficult. And so I, I kind of tried to pitch it in the middle. So look, I think for uh, Ian Hart, who played um, Dennis Goldberg in the film, like he you got to great. really believe. He did really Yeah, well. I think so. You know, I think so. He came there for a week rehearsals. And it was interesting as a side point, um, uh, Dan Radcliffe and Dan Weber and um, 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 Mark um, Winter. Winter, thank you very yeah. much. I'm sorry, Mark. Um, uh, <laughs> He's listening. Yeah, so. of course he is. Yeah. Um, you know, they. We were. I got into it with them. Uh, I managed to, you know, amazingly get um, a couple of weeks rehearsal with them. So we had a full week of, of script rehearsals, and we were going into it. You know, they were making modifications to their characters, but Ian Hart wasn't there, so it was quite interesting. I learned a lot directorially that, aha, the actors are advocating for their characters, obviously. And when you don't always have all of them there, it's partly my job to make sure I'm defending everyone equally, but also I do need them there because they will advocate. So when he got on the scene, he said, hey, wait a minute. Da -da 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 -da, and he yeah. noticed that with everyone else flexing their muscles for their characters, yeah. Dennis had a bit of a kink in his armor. And so he came and defended the next character and I was, I was able to make some changes. Right. So I, I learned something there about directing, you know, about rehearsals and making sure everyone's there and everyone can defend themselves. But anyway, um, <coughs> in, in rehearsal, I said, okay, well, Ian, you know, really believe what you believe and don't make it out as if you're Frank. a cipher or yeah. you're just, you know, you're, you're putting the villain hat on. I want you to convince the audience. Uh, and so there's a, a Christmas scene where they all have it, you know, have a go at it and they, you know, kind of take lumps out of each other, metaphorically and physically, yep. uh, literally. And in that, I wanted really the audience to be like, oh, flip. You yep. know what? Yeah. They both got good points, not just side with Dan's character. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, there was a, there was an attempt in the script on the page to try and make it difficult yeah. uh, based upon the 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 centrality and the, the the conviction of the argument which Dennis Goldberg is making. Right. Um, so you're not just left with a bad guys, good guys. And then there's guys. that massive satisfying re resolution as he breaks the light and shorts the circuit. And then all of a sudden the entire team works together for the escape 
I don't know. I, that seemed to play, pay off really well. Is, that a, is that a real beat? Yeah, is that's that, what happened. Yeah, that's what happened. Because I, I was sitting there thinking, man, these circuits are terrible. <laughs> if you yeah. can short the these circuit old to the school, printer, like, Old school single like, circuit. Whoa. That's yeah. like a junior high. Yeah. Electronics, so, yeah. So they, they actually used to do that. So before um, that, uh, Tim and Stephen actually entered the prison, um, they used to um, mess around with the circuits and they would do little things so they could get, you know, <laughs> what they needed. And even more than that, um, I think because Dennis was quite a well-respected prisoner, um, I think the bulbs at one point were left in his cell and there were little bits because they trusted him not to, you know. De- so it was a very, very interesting, peculiar situation. But yeah, the, the circuitry was so bad because, you know, they didn't get yeah. stuff about them. Oh, is that why he kept the money? Because he didn't get, his his cell wasn't getting searched. Yeah, just, he's top top level, you know, yeah. kind of creme de la creme, don't uh, mess around with Dennis. Yeah. Um, and so he was able to, you know, do things like that. Uh, but amazing character. And, you know, everything that happens in the film pretty much is, you know, accurate to him. Yeah. yeah uh, as far as the characters, the three main characters, can you talk about how you tried to balance those out? Obviously, I did. Rad- I was worried that, obviously, as someone who grew up watching Harry Potter, that <laughs> I was going to have trouble watching Radcliffe yeah. in a prison escape, right? <laughs> um, but it wasn't. And you did. <laughs> I have a different kind of you trouble. You rooted against him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. We not all really. know we're not supposed really. to root for Harry Potter, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brian's always been a big Voldemort fan. Okay, okay. Right. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, but, you know, you have the guy who is very clearly, every detail matters. He's, he's getting it out. You have the more happy-go-lucky um, uh, Stephen character. And then you have, it felt like the emotional intensity our audience really channeled into um, uh the Leonard character. And I wondered if that's how you did, did they find that on their own? Did you set that up in the script? What's the way? Uh, Cause I kept identifying with the, the Leonard character of, you know, him getting upset. I kept thinking, man, how do you keep it together while you're trying to escape? Whereas the Radcliffe character almost seemed to have a preternatural patience and ability just to do it over and over. Even when he's obviously worked. a very OCD guy. Totally. And yeah. so the, the ability to work, that key construction and to just layer key after key after key and not get frustrated. And every <laughs> the, the, one of the things that's it's funny too to think about just getting out of his cell, the difficulty that you convey very, very effectively uh, with the bubblegum scene, <laughs> trying to get out of your cell with the little arm around the fact that he's doing that every single time to even get out to <laughs> like assess the next lock and start working on the next key and then get back in and. It's crazy. It's yeah. a it's a crazy amount of convoluted effort to get further and further and further away to the doors between you and freedom. Yeah, um, and I thought that you did ex- you exploited that really really well. Mm-hmm. But even there, I was just thinking, man, the frustration, the patience a scout have to have to do that every single time, and you knew it went wrong more than once. Right, and like you really highlight that one time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, so your, your, yes, basically frustration was a huge part of it. And it was a case of trying to somehow pitch the frustration levels of the characters with your frustration as you watch it in a way that's anticipatory and sort of exciting and not boring, obviously. Um, your thing about three characters, you know, um, Tim Jenkins came on set for 10 days and which petrified everybody because <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Dan no. was oh my God, it's the real guy's here. And I think Dan did a great job because Tim is somebody who you may overlook you know you may see him in the corner but there and be like okay some dude 
put glasses on, you wouldn't necessarily go, that's a swashbuckling guy who, yeah. you know, kicks butt and who breaks out of prisons and speaks out against, you know, racial injustice. You wouldn't necessarily think that, um, which was a USB. So you had to play or that I should put the temptation was to play up a more kind of, yeah, you know, bravura, uh, Steve McQueen type, you know, kind of yeah. eclectic, enigmatic character rather than just play it straight and this kind of easy E who's just cool under pressure. And so I think that was a thing that I think Dan did well. And we, again, I, I went around to Dan's house and <laughs> left him DVDs of random obscure French cinema. Said, watch this, watch this. And it was just really clean really i wouldn't simple is the right word and also the wrong word because simple implies basic but what i mean by simple is pure really pure intense that like you understand exactly what that character is thinking and feeling when you see them look just off camera right, right. and it's not trying to do anything other than convey that one thing um very pure cinema you're not trying to hit trick shots yeah or mood, yeah yeah or trying to have massive monologues where you're trying to emote you're just like that guy's yeah. tense that guy's doing this and so we went for that mode of performance i guess you might say a bressonian simplicity and clarity which is hard to do it's hard yeah. to can things and convey um i think dicaprio does it in in, in uh, the revenant in a similar way it's very little dialogue and he's got to convey every all this yeah. stuff with just a close-up you know and it's great so i think it was that level for me, I was really happy on that level. Uh, and that is very true to Tim's character. He's an easy E, he's cool under pressure. Doesn't work, doesn't matter. That snaps, I mean, you, say, you say this, but one of the things is his panic attacks. Yes, that's true. I mean, like the the thing that stood out to me is the his ability to continue going, where it's like, yeah, the level of the stress. He paid the price. Like he's he's yeah. clearly redlining all the stress. He's been able to be cool under pressure. And yet, like it's breaking him. And then he still gets up and does it again. Yeah, and gets up and does it again. So like the the panic attack piece was that was that real? It was real, and it was in and out of the script, and it was in and out of the cut loads that I was like desperate to keep that in because it was about this private and public. No one actually is calm under pressure. All the way, completely. all the way. Yeah. Right? yeah, they're calm under pressure to you. Yeah, and when they go behind closed doors, they. Yep. freak out and sweat out and do whatever and then they compose themselves and come out again right and and that was really important and you see that several times you know when the guard the guard goes around the yep. cell and then he kind of breaks down when he's in his room <laughs> what is this it's a picture holder it's no, a, really, it's a, a really really <laughs> crappy stupid picture holder. i don't know if you were it's like oh what i don't know if you're shouting at him hold but that scene as he like failed to come up with an answer for what it was was so good yeah <laughs> you're just like everyone's like what's he gonna say yeah. <laughs> see it's to hold this picture really badly yeah yeah and the editor nick fenton um he kept like add another second i was like yeah, yeah, yeah. add another second so we really tried to string it out and we cut, we cut back to the guard so it just you know yeah. it works well dan did a, did a did a good great job with that um yeah so yeah, it's good. It's a good point. You know, he he is stressing out, but he's containing it, and that was him. Steve was, you know, if, if Steve was in the room now, he'd have a big, beautiful, you know, sunshine lighting up the room type smile and a big, sp- <laughs> yeah. you know, smile and laugh. And that's who he is. You know, he 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 kind he kind of is um, a great um, pair of hands. When you need them, I can do that. Yeah, I can grab that. Yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, you know, um, and you need that because you know you need that kind of calm. He's calm in a different way. You know, he's not necessarily pushing forward with the ideas, but when you need that extra pair of hands or you need that support system or you need someone who's just there, yeah, the real Steve is that guy. And so again, that that was a co-pilot. Yeah, 
So yeah. he was a brilliant counterpoint to, to someone like the neuroticism, the, the neuroticism of Tim. Um, I think he kind of was a counterpoint in real life. So we needed someone who could do that kind yeah. of shaggy bear type thing as well. And, and Weber does that fantastically. He's just, you know, you let me out. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. Um, the guy who'd jump out the window to try and escape right away. That was a great character yeah, moment. Yeah. You, know, you know which kind of guy we're dealing we're with. We're dealing with, right? Just yeah. Yeah. seize the moment. And again, the real Steve did do that <laughs> and got caught. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, I think that's a great counterpoint. Now, now I start to walk on legal egg trails. There is a real character who I will not mention, but it's easily findable. Um, and if you read the book, um, who for a range of legal reasons, um, requested not to be named in the film. And uh, so it's a I change. I yes. Gonna ask. <laughs> you can talk about him right. and you can talk about the film, but the two, you know, the twins. Never the two shall meet. Indeed yeah. so, never the twins shall mix. Um, and so uh, thankfully, if I've been honest, because it could have been a much more uh, minacious situation, but he just said, look, as long as you change my name, um, I'm good to go. Just, just don't use my real name and likeness. So, Okay, great. Um, and I would say, uh, apart from that, um, uh, if you took a piece of tracing paper and put it over a picture and then trace that picture, what you would have would be escape material. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and right. so, you know, elements like, you know, one hour per year for his kid and right. and things like this, you know, we're all straight out of the book. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think you're right that... Um, that kind of French francophone, uh, 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 absolute whirlwind, you know, train rides, you know, sort of guy who comes in at hundred miles per hour with everything. He's got full of passion and stuff. Was was a fairly accurate, um, even in that story. <laughs> you know, yeah. you could see his desire to have his name changed was kind of very, very much like that character. And yeah. so we changed. Lennon Fontaine is the main character in the film called A Man Escaped. And so I took that as a kind of a little homage to yeah, that nice. film. And that's his name in the film, Leonard, Leonard Fontaine. I don't think he ever gets mentioned. Um, his name gets mentioned, but you know, yeah, one hour per year, him striving to see his son, him uh, joining the cause and then getting yanked off a plane and given a 25 year sentence, you know, that kind of 20 year sentence, um, that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, a lot of audiences would um, resonate with that um, because there's a backstory there, you know, with, with our two characters, they just parachuted in. Whereas with that character, you sort of meet this old soul who's there and haggard and, you know, and sees these two guys. It's been and stuck thinks, for a while. Yeah, yeah, he sees this hope and this light. So yeah, I think a lot of people have mentioned resonating with Lennon's character. Um, it's kind of the, the nature of the industry is hard to really comprehend for people. So even describing the process where it's like, oh, there's a wildly complicated thing that happened long ago with this guy who pulled off an incredible escape by hand-making wooden keys, you know, breaking out of a cell and just key after key after key. He writes a book. He's got to escape to England. He's written this book. The IP is trading hands for years. The producers that, that you end up working with have it, lose it, get it back after pain and agony. You pitch like, okay, you're attached to direct script. Isn't getting to where needs to be. Now you're writing, you're writing the script and then you have to cast and it's so much like team rodeo. Like there's just, I've told, I've told a lot of people that it's like putting all these people on the back of one bowl and seeing who's still on at the end. You know, there's just <laughs> people are on, people are off. 
then when you watch a film and you start seeing the the associate producers and all you layers after layers, there's it's like the growth rings of a tree. Yeah. You just kind of see the progression, but there's so much chaos that you you come into that you try to control and steer and and take into in something that's a piece of art at the end that communicates. Then for you, you're on this, it's kind of a breakout film for you. What had you done right before Escape from Pretoria? I've done so I trained at the BBC. I've yeah. done some factual stuff, main unit, second unit stuff. A lot of industry experience. Yeah. Yeah. Some TV we met, drama. We met in like 2014 in London at Rain Dance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and it's so much has happened since then in the industry. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, the industry is changing underneath us. So much. Yeah. Then you, you come on, you have a breakout film. Uh, you're referencing a lot of French film, but you're making it very commercial. French film's not commercial. Mm-hmm. So taking, taking sort of the auteur, like the the high artistry of of a lot of different filmmakers and then making it uh, really palatable and primal and effective with a with a wide audience mm-hmm. is is awesome. It's a great skill to be able to do that. But then you're on it, you're gonna make this in South Africa. You then you have the hard pivot in production. So tell the story about that. Like we're gonna make yeah, this in South it, Africa and why then is it, why is it not yeah. in South Africa? <laughs> Again, uh legal Sure. Uh, minefields, uh, yeah. notwithstanding. Um, effectively. The bowl is bucking and everybody's hanging on the back. That's right. You're going into production in South Africa. Yeah. And then I'm in Cape Town in a hotel, swanky hotel, interviewing designers and DPs and editors, streaming through, you know, for several days, casting directors, a whole lot. Um, I've picked my production designer and she's doing previs on sets. We're going to use Mandela's uh, set. They've got a standing set at the back of the Cape Town Studios, we're going to modify that set, yes, and, um, you know, make that into Escape from Victoria. Um, and then we go to Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival in South of France, in 2018, so May 2018, and we go to the South African Pavilion uh, to say, you know, we got Dan Radcliffe at that point. We had Sam Neill as well um, attached to play um, the Ian Hart character, uh, Dennis Goldberg. He also um, would have been great. He would have been. But yeah, Ian, really Ian Hart did well. Yeah. Um, and we sit down and, you know, we're basically told that um, the tax system, again, without kind of pointing fingers, is not going to be fast enough to um, be able to pr- produce that money. It's not going to work for money. It's not going to work. For this particular story, it's yeah. not going to work. Right. And unlike a lot of... Um, productions that go to South Africa, we just, we didn't need just the kind of 18, 20% tax credit. We needed extra actual equity from within the various stratas of the kind of film department. And so that's where we got, you know, became asunder. Um, And we had Dan, I think for a very small window, it was, you know, January, February, March, and then, you know, he's gone. Uh, We had Ian Hart, very small window, and so on and so forth. And so it was like, okay, um, this is not going to work. The pot of money is short by a certain amount and various elements in South Africa are not able to fill that pot within time, maybe by June, but by that point, you know, (laughs) all the cast have gone and we're starting again. Um, And so that's when everyone freaked out and pulled their hair out and said, this is not going to work. This is May 2018 and we're supposed to go into principal photography uh, around February, March 2019. And so the sales agents who... um, but kind of also minor producers had a base in Australia. And they said, look, you know, technically we could put on our Australian hat, as it were, and we could become lead producers and we could make this film in-house as an internal production, as leaders. And the, the main producers become 
kind of assist secondary producers, but equal. Uh, and we can go and shoot the whole thing there. And like any good filmmaker, I rejected and threw my toys out the pram and kicked the floor and said, no, this is, you know, against, no, this is not, you know, artistically accurate. And uh, <laughs> no. Anyway, so May turned to August. At which point we could say many, many projects die. Yes. That is the moment where, because you're obsessive, you're neurotic artistically. Yeah. Like you channel the Daniel Radcliffe character and <laughs> you you love all the details and you love French cinema, which means that you are the kind of person who at that moment would be doomed. <laughs> where it's like, no, this is the this way. This has to be done. This, this is the this way. Has to right? be and that South it's, Africa, it's yeah. ridiculously brutal because that, that'll happen pre-production, that'll happen post-production, that'll happen in production. Things will come up that you have to adapt like you have to adapt around. Yeah. You have to adapt and overcome. So that that moment right there, for everybody who's listening, that's when most films that have gotten to that level die. Yeah. It was that first big hurdle, and then the creatives can't adapt around it. Sometimes they're right, and it's better to not make it. And sometimes they're wrong, and you can find a solution. So you had to go through the stages of grief. <laughs> Many stages of different <laughs> levels of peels of grief and tears and so, such like. And then the heaven spoke to me. We get to Adelaide in South Australia. and So he was still attached. You hadn't quit. I hadn't you actually quit. went to Australia. I, I hadn't quit. I, I was trying to get the South African option to work on the side, but it was not really working. Um, I get flown to Australia, you know, with a dummy in my mouth and, you know, throw my pram out. I don't want to be here. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I said, what are these beautiful trees? These beautiful kind of purple, dark red trees. Oh, jacaranda trees. These are native of Johannesburg. Yeah, no. and they were brought here a couple hundred years ago. So what? That was amazing. And what's this prison that I don't want to film in because I want to build it myself? Oh, this is where a film called Breaker Morant was shot about the Boer War. It was shot here in Adelaide, oh, Australia, wow. even though it's set in South Africa. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so I'm getting all these little signs that mm, maybe. And then the thing that was absolutely amazing was we um, the prison set's fantastic. Too. Yeah, that's so, crazy. Yeah, it was the whole of a story because I couldn't yeah. get. They wanted me to film in a hospital or a prison or something and modify it. Long corridors, you know, tall ceilings. Yeah. Just modify it. And if you watch the film, you'll see that next to each prison cell is a window. That that window is not just an aesthetic piece; it's integral to, to the, the story. story. Yeah. No window, yeah. no second act, no nothing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was sent to all these period buildings. Great, beautiful, kind of you know, strong metal and oak doors. But I can't use this corridor because there's no window next to it, and people didn't understand until I made the film. And it's so wrong, yeah, it's wrong. Wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. And so I needed a hundred and fifty foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to reach out. All the cells have got to be on one side. You know, there was there was an attempt to try and make five cells and five cells to make a shorter corridor. Right. But again, that's a different film because then the set the the yep. the, the, the inmates can see each other. And no, it, the, everything changes. Right. Yeah. So everything's all, different. Right? Yeah. And so 150 feet. <laughs> that was the length of my you know set. It was huge, and you know, so they had to make that work. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I all these signs in Adelaide made me see, okay, you know, it kind of works. And I, I had a hero shot. I had a shot of this street in, um, actually Pretoria, a high street in same time, 1978. And, you know, it has these kind of awnings. And because of this similarity with this uh, post-colonial architecture, which is same in Australia as it is in South Africa, um, they have this exact same awnings. You know, the, the shop fronts have these kind of little awnings outside the shops, you know, with these pillars, exactly the same. So I put up my hero shot on my iPad and it was almost exactly the same as the shot 
you know, that I was looking, seeing in front of me in Adelaide. Oh, wow. Um, and people were joking that, yes, you know, Adelaide is so backward that, you know, <laughs> they, they've got enough, you know, uh, streets to look like 1970 South Africa. But <laughs> it worked and it was brilliant. So I think once I had those, that triple hit, I was like, okay, actually, not only can this work and the weather's great and everything, this is going to be great. Um, I'm going to so, make this movie and it will be good. It'll be yeah. good. So yeah, that was a, that was about October 2018. And then all hands to the plow to 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 move the entire juggernaut production. I had to re um cast all my, you know, crew, all my HODs were dropped. Um I had to build set sets from scratch. I had to move my family out there um in early uh, January 2019 and just threw everything at it um to get the thing on its feet. Yeah. Got it, it made. Mm. Got it cut. Got it cut shorter. Yeah. And then released right into the teeth of COVID. That was fun. Yeah, just this is one of those things where it's it's helpful to believe there is a God. Yes, <laughs> I know that he he knows he knows what he's doing. Yeah, even if even if the world doesn't. Yeah. Uh, what's it been like post post COVID? Like it's like everybody like the the film came out is well received, but obviously won uh, won the spotlight award, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. or you so, did, I should say. Yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's well received, but didn't have. I mean, it was out for a week. If that, I think it was yeah. out for four day, Monday to Thursday, and then I think the Friday of that week, I think in the UK at least, it was announced that the following week cinemas would be shut down. Yeah. Well, um, brutal. And yeah. your and your insurance, like so, for people who don't know the industry, every every production's insured, mm. but you can't insure a, a release. There's no insurance of a release. Like, hey, we, we, I want to buy an insurance. You probably could get somebody to sell you one. Be really expensive. I want to buy an insurance policy against the government shutting down theaters. Mm-hmm. You know, if, yeah. but that just doesn't exist. You have it against the death of cast members. You've got it. You've got all sorts of insurance on these productions, but then the release comes. Uh, it's a film that it continues to kind of like circulate as it's on Hulu right now. And it mm-hmm. keeps showing up different places and people really enjoy it. They really like it. But overwhelmingly there's the question of, of why don't I know about this? Why did I not hear about this? Why mm-hmm. did it? And that there's a whole, tranche of films that had that experience uh in 2020 but since then on the other on the other side of this career-wise this has been good so in terms of your your writing and your directing it's like how's what's what's it been like bouncing back i mean it's a good point you make um the bounce back has been a bit long a bit lengthy but really i think a lot of filmmakers are so down the rabbit hole of raising the finance yeah. getting the script ready in development you know, then going and making the film post-production that really all of that is for naught potentially if you can't get it seen. I think distribution is the unseen alchemistic, you know, art of the whole filmmaking thing. Like, you know, it's better to have a poor film that's seen by millions than have a great film that never gets seen or gets made and gets shelved as some recent you know filmmakers have sadly experienced on the studio side yeah. um and so yeah it's the distribution is is, is everything you know you've got to get the film actually seen the whole point of making the entire thing unless it's for you and your friends is for it to be seen um and so yeah the pandemic shot a hole through that we one of the interesting is it positive i'm not sure one of the interesting side effects that were you know uh, positive in some way was that originally we would have had a one-hit release it would have been from 6th of march or whatever through to for about three or four weeks and that's it pretty much you know yeah every territory would have you know australia and korea big and push that's yeah. it big push three weeks it would have been the cinemas and done, done what it did and then it would have fizzled out but what happened was because it was pulled from everywhere 
Um, the different distributors, you know, distributors are different um, companies in different countries who are tasked with um, selling and getting your film in that country. So you might have Italy and you might have uh, distributor ABC. And distributor yeah. ABC is the one that gets your film into all the cinemas in Italy and all the DVD um, outlets. So, um, so all the distributors in all the different countries had different strategies, not least because the COVID policies in those countries were so varied. Yep. Australia was incredibly strict. Um, uh, Korea, by May, my film was number one. We beat Woody Allen. We beat Rolls. We beat so many massive films because um, <laughs> they had yeah. released and our film was there and everyone loves Dan Radcliffe out there. And it was a good film and it made... I don't know, $7 million at the box office, which is not a lot, but for the pandemic. No, in that market it is. It was huge. And it was yeah. all over the press that, oh my gosh, this film, two or three films have done quite well. Yeah. And um, we were on the news in Korea and so on. So, so these amazing little quirks. And then we were out in Australia in October. Um, and then we were out in Mexico in October. So we, that was the breadth from May to October. Our film kept popping up. So it was a little lot longer then. Right. Okay. So I was doing interviews for Estonian TV and for Korea and for Singapore and then America uh, throughout the year. It was really yeah. interesting. So actually we got a much bigger bite of the cherry, as it were, with repeated new releases throughout the year that we wouldn't have had if we just had a straight three-week, four-week run globally and then that's it. So that was a real positive that I didn't That's expect. <laughs> I didn't see that happen. I think the film perhaps wouldn't have been as, I won't call it successful, but as 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 uh, well-received perhaps, at least on a critical level, if it hadn't been for the repeat door knocking of it being yeah. released in different territories over you know, a nine-month period. That never would have been the strategy. It never would have been a, like, let's do a staggered nine-month release. Right. That just wouldn't happen. No, it would have been one hit. So that was a, a good positive from it. Um, and, you know, Dan was able to come out and other people could come out and do little bits of press and things again throughout the year. And they were, because they were, you know, yeah. landlocked, they were able to sort of do that. So there was, there was some cool little bits like that, you know, little aftershocks that were positive. Yeah. Um, but it was tough. You know, the, the, the film took a big knock. Um, I say, did, the, did the investors survive? They did. Um, um, I think we released in China, I don't know, Dang, in February or something day. like this. Yeah. yeah. And it made, I think, 700000 or a million dollars, which again, um, is not a lot, but it was number four in the China box office for yeah. two weeks. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. So little quirks like that. Um, and one random other side thing was that, you know, when the pandemic happened, the big dogs, the big studios jumped to the front of the streaming queue, wanting their films to be, um, you know, pushed, uh, taken yeah. off theatrical. And so. Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. <laughs> yeah, Remember yeah. Wonder Woman. Uh, I'm just, these are not attacks, but that's just, you know, I understand it. Um, but um, yeah, Wonder they, Woman. Wonder Woman and others 1984. Came out. That's it. And oh, came out gosh. to the front. And so, I mean, if, <laughs> if I was a filmmaker making a studio film, I'd probably want the same thing. But but one of the consequences what was that a lot of the independent smaller films like ours, um, uh, it wasn't, again, it wasn't actually Wonder Woman's decision. It was the, the streamers. They said, look, we need people here. We're going to find our biggest IP, our biggest projects, and we're going to put them to the top of the queue. And so, so uh, we were supposed to be released on Amazon Prime in the UK, I think, in uh, May. Then it got pushed to October. Then it got finally pushed to February 21. So it was a big gap. That, again, actually worked really well for us mm. because um, we were fresh. Um, nothing came out in February 2021. <laughs> we had nothing to compete against. There yeah. was no Wonder Woman or anything. There was, we were the main film on there, and we were on there for weeks and weeks. And we kept returning. And so, again, another 
quick. It looked like it was a negative and it kind of, you know, it wasn't ideal, but it ended up spinning out to be very positive for the film and for, for us. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a mixed bag. You chuck your hand in the bag and you either get bitten by a rattlesnake or you pick up a lollipop, you know, you, you to take your pick. But, um, there's, there's, there's so much that's just out of your control, especially in that. Well, just in this business. So, if you, I've told a lot of people at different points, the best script of the year could be the worst movie of the year, mm-hmm. very, very easily. And you can take a mediocre script and could be actually a pretty phenomenal film with the right talent, with the right director, even editor, score. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many different pieces that that uh, come together uh, to get you there. Mm-hmm. But you are ultimately just pushing Moses into the river in a basket. I mean, like that's when it comes time you're just at the mercy of the global marketplace and whatever happens. So it's, it's interesting, but fundamentally as like a, as a book publisher, it is always interesting to me to hear from the movie production side, how many things have to go right in order for it to, to achieve at the level that everybody wants it to. Yeah. With a book, you can sometimes get the auteur author who just nails it. And then yeah. you still need like a couple other things to go right. Yeah. Uh, just a few. <laughs> but you do. The, the good thing is, and what you're describing is the, like the cream rises situation, like things that are buoyant, like you can end up pushed down, you can end up trapped, you can, you can end up stuck. But for anybody who wants to write, anybody who wants to create at all, focus on what you can control, which is making the thing in front of you as good as you possibly can make it. And when you've done that, ultimately it's either buoyant or it isn't. And it could still get destroyed, you know, because of, you know, circumstances, World War II, you know, whatever. Uh, I have been on many a book tour where different things hit the news and it's just such a pain. Uh, but I was <laughs> I was on one tour talking to a, a literary escort is what they're called. These people that make sure that authors show up on time to events, not not drunk. And, like, it's, and this is, we call it the Ray Bradbury rule. <laughs> like, okay. just, you know, like these escorts, like really imprison you. You are a, a prisoner being shuttled around. Yeah. And I was hearing all the stories about all the authors who were on the road when 9-11 happened, Ooh. releasing books. And, mm. and it's, yeah, you're, you're in a situation like that and all the selfishness kicks in. Mm. Like I just spent two years trying to, you know, like, but it's, well, it's a casualty. Your book is a casualty along with mm many, many other things and far more important things, actual lives. But there's a weird pressure. Like people are still trying to promote, like, how do we promote? How do we, how do we push? How do we, how do we make this thing matter at all? And it's really difficult, but you, you just have to ultimately trust God that you're doing what you can. Mm -hmm. You've done your best and then it will float. He'll bring it to the top or not. So I've loved seeing the movie kind of continue five years after production, right? Yeah continue to find new markets. And one of the reasons why I was excited to pick it is because I liked it when I saw it. And then it's just still being discovered. It's like five, five years on, it's still being discovered by audiences for the first time. So uh, I don't know how many people we have listened to our lamp episodes, but I'm, I'm willing to, but I'm willing to bet that, uh, you know, for a lot of them, this is a new film. Mm. You know, this is actually like, Oh, Hey, this is, or they saw the, you know, the key art go by on a streamer and, you know, it's the first impression and they, they wouldn't even assess it. They're not enough, you know, reviews or chatter. So I'm hoping this will, you know, uh, help a lot of people find it and also start to follow your, your work. 
Yeah, I think prison movies are evergreen in that sense. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. blessing in that sense. You know, uh, if it's done halfway decently and you gripped and so so, it'll last. You know, yeah. um, I'm not going to compare this movie to Shawshank Redemption, but I think one of the reasons that it does well. so well. Why not? Yes. <laughs> it's just, cleaner. Just, yeah. You're gonna watch it with your kids. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I was gonna say. Yeah. Less there's there's it doesn't get quite as rapey. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, so there's, there's there's that going for it. Um, but you know, but it, it, it's a prison movie. You know, everyone's willing to watch a prison movie. I, I think going back to what we said before, it's another reason why getting that balance right. You know, it couldn't be too art housey yeah. because then it loses that. You know, there's an evergreenness which you want to preserve at its core. The film is not preaching to you that apartheid is wrong. And it's like, you know, if you watch a World War II movie, no one says, let's spend 25 minutes talking about the Nazis and how they're terrible guys. No, you, you get it. The audience get that. And what's the actual story? Is it a They've seen the mustache. Yeah. Exactly. And they've seen the, you know, SS yeah. sticker. I mean, they wear gray uniforms. So. They don't want a story about how the, how the right. Nazis are about. They want a love story or they want a story yep. about sports or they want a story about how these three guys got out of this. They want an actual narrative. The the, 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 the premise is there, you know. Yeah. So I think with a lot of African movies, we had a lot of conversation about this. You know, sometimes it's very preachy and it's very, you know, these are the yep. good guys and these are the bad guys. And I personally and the producers were personally like, we can't do that because it's going to fatigue the audience. Faith, faith films and anything that's politically charged. Right. Yeah, it's like just tell the story. I mean, they can just go, tell the they story. They go to propaganda so yeah. fast. Yeah, right? it's no, exactly. It's just, it's just like this isn't a story. This it's is, not a story, right? Yeah. Um, and the ones that break out and do well on all those different levels—Africa, faith, whatever—there's um, an actual story. So it, it, it's accessible, and you're down the rabbit hole in five minutes. That's a good story, and you can tell the whole world <laughs> that story yeah. and they'll get it. And so yeah, we're very, very keen to make sure that it wasn't you know this. This 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 preachathon in terms of you know the virtues of uh, uh, justice and so on. What's the actual story? Two guys, three guys get in prison. They break out. You know, that's well, the thing. I mean, I think you set the palette really well because you have those opening brutal scenes, yeah. right, of real footage uh, from apartheid. Yeah, and you also you also tease it. Yeah, the, the apartheid yeah. scenes, but you also tease it extremely well with the actual explosions. Like, yeah. are these yeah. actually terrorists? Yeah. And you tease it, then the reveal of the paper is like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, which is brilliant. Yeah. But yeah. And, and then you set that up. So we are now thinking in that context of oppression mm. and then who's the oppressed. It makes it, I mean, I think you, uh, you set it up so nicely. So it had, it had to be, you need it, you needed it enough to have us want them to get out. Yeah. Right. You know, so if, if they were killers yes. trying to escape, it's like, like actually bombing you know, people. Yeah. Right. They're actual terrorists had killed a bunch of people. That's tricky. It's like, <laughs> how do we really root for them to, <laughs> to get out? It, it doesn't work anywhere near as well. Yeah. We actually, so our last lamp pick was Jojo rabbit. Oh yeah. So what you're, you know, what you're talking about in terms of, how you approach the bad guys arch villains yeah. or approaching the bad guys in new ways mm. they like absolutely resonates or they're just they're there we don't need to go do this but mm. jojo rabbit goes this hogan's heroes route mm. of like the farce like over the top mm. uh you've seen it obviously mm. how do you how do you uh respond to jojo um i think yeah i remember some time ago someone was talking about there's two, two, two different types of producers. There's producers who go, we're making a movie like this. You know, so they get a bunch of DVDs off the shelf and they throw them yep. on the table and say, we want something like, like this, right? Yeah. And then you get another type of producer who says, you know, DVDs off the shelf. And so this is everything that's been made in this genre. What else? Yeah. What other space is left, right? So, you, and you, in, in, as a filmmaker, you tend to see 
that you know yeah. replicate itself do you want something that fits within a thing or that's something that is within a thing but says something new um and i think danny ball said you know he didn't want to make um the steve jobs film um with michael fassbender because social network was such a strong movie yeah. and was such a juggernaut that he didn't think he could add anything to that whole world right and then Sorkin came up with this way of, you know, yeah. this, this kind of 70s, 80s, 90s thing. He said, okay, fine. I think I can make it work. Fine. Right? Fine. I'll do it. <laughs> right. And so I think- Fincher did this like serial killer <laughs> social media thing that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my niche? And so yeah. I think that's the same thing, you know, something like, something like George Rabbit or anti-apartheid movie or, you know, something with, with Nazis or you know, bad people. You're looking for the niche, I think. You're looking for the, the special- thing that has been done in a different way that no one else has done um uh, you were never really here which is a yep. ramsey film i think again the attempt with this kind of thriller story with this art house sensibility i think you know is an attempt to go we're gonna do this thing one of my favorite scenes in that film is um uh, where uh, joaquin phoenix's character um finds he's supposed to find this kidnapped girl for this wealthy businessman and he finds the house where they're keeping all these you know girls and things and the whole sequence is is shot when he finds the place and enters it and, you know, kicks ass and gets them, is um, CCTV cameras. Yeah, it's all security footage. It's all security, so you don't have any sound. You just see him walking through, getting bad guys. Grainy. It's it's grainy. It's silent. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so photorealistic. Um, that's what yeah. I think top filmmakers are trying to do on the page where possible. And if not on the page, at least visually, you're trying to go, how can I do this in the way that is actually new? Um, and I think, yeah, if you try and do that, then um, you are going to um, respect the audience, I think, with some of the presuppositions or with some of the uh, intelligence, the, the kind of the kind of um, A plus B equals C. So I don't have to do the A plus B, right. but you get you know what C comprises. So let's get on with the film. You do a lot of that, and I think the audience, um, I think, and I hope, respect you for it a little bit more. They go, oh, yeah, you, definitely, yeah. yeah. So we right before we started. Uh, we we walked in here for the podcast. Uh, you and I were talking about directors, how few directors there are that people go watch, and the director is the lead talent. Yeah, you know where it's you're trying to attach cast or big IP studios want IP IP IP. They all talk about that, and, and we were talking about when they have giant IP and they attach kind of no name talent, breakout talent because the IP carries it. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's the directors that people watch like just for their signature. And so we were talking about Christopher Nolan, Wes Anderson, you mentioned Spielberg. Yeah. Uh, Taika Waititi is actually now one of them. Yeah. Is there, what do you want? And th they all each have their own distinct thing. So Chris Nolan's got his Chris Nolan obsessiveness and he doesn't care about making sense or letting you hear the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but he's got his thing, you know, and Taika Waititi now has his thing. Spielberg is interesting. Because he's uh, he's so workmanlike, he's willing to tell stories that it's just about reaching the audience. It's mm. so much about giving the story to the audience, mm. and and very rarely is it about the telling of the story. Mm. He's not trying to draw attention to that. But where do you, where do you want to sit when people are thinking of, you know, a Francis Anan film, uh, five movies from now, six movies from now, like what do you want your distinct flavor or brand to be known as so it's, it's a very difficult one. I, I read um uh, sydney lumet's making movies which, which i'm sure many people have um and you know he's 
got such an eclectic, yeah. uh, you know, genre mix. You know, right. it's so broad. Um, thrillers and you know, Midnight on the Orient Express up to you know, Dog Day Afternoon to you know, Devon Lodge Dead, and it's a whole big spectrum. And he talks about how you know he would basically, if he was doing a certain genre picture, he would watch twenty or thirty movies in that genre to know what the rules are of that genre. Mm. So it was in his head and then he would go to work. You know, he, he had a kind of equally workmanlike thing. I think Spielberg has definitely a, 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 a visual and a kinesthetic and yep. a, uh, a kind of narrative style. Yes. Yep. But, but it's not about him. Right. The genres yeah. are also very, very broad. And so I kind of feel, well, another one of my all-time favorite filmmakers is Denis Villeneuve. Woohoo! Shout out. And, um, you know, he obviously has narrowed towards science fiction he's always loved that but um what i like about him and filmmakers like him is they take a genre quite a genre story and they put a sensibility on it which is basically what i think great filmmakers do yeah they have a sensibility which they put and when you mix what ostensibly could be an action film you know kind of cross the border you know right. cartels drugs that could just be a shoot em up kind of action music film and you put this uh, quasi Euro sensibility, Euro film light sensibility on onto that genre. You get this beautiful new thing, yeah, and all you've done is just taken a sensibility and a genre and put yeah, them together. Collage work, right? You're doing, yeah. Um, and so I feel as if that is interesting. Can you take? I don't know what I am yet. I don't know what I have. I mean, obviously tension. The idea of building tension. A lot of the scripts I get. Uh, are about needing a viscerality, needing an immediacy, needing a very tight connection with the central character. That's what I seem to be the one who is, you know, known for doing that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess it's taking that and some of those uh, derogations and those variations and, and mixing that with interesting places, with interesting genres and seeing what's created. I don't know what kind of filmmaker that makes me yet, but I think if I'm sitting in front of a script and I can make it better and I can make it work better, and if I'm sitting in front of a monitor, I, mean, I, don't, I don't sit in front of monitors, I'm behind the camera, but still, if I'm sitting behind the camera and I can make that scene work better and I'm sitting in the edit suite and I can make that work better, I think that's what you said earlier. It's yeah. just sitting in front of the thing in front of you and just making that as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. And that's the best that you can. Later, maybe I will start to see things that whether it's visual or whether it's narrative or whatever that, right. you know, that kind of come through. Will I ever be a Nolan? Probably not. <laughs> Will I ever be a Spielberg? Probably not. You know, these are, these are, these are amazing, uh, gifted. They also put a lot of work in, but they're gifted filmmakers who see the world in a certain way and design it in a certain way. I hope to build that muscle and those muscles, plural. Um, and, um, I just love, really, if I'm being honest, I just love telling stories with as few words as possible yeah. um, and enjoying watching the audience understand yeah. and, and respond. That's my so style. So it's, it's kind of, um, this, this is like a broad brush and is overly patronizing. <laughs> That's fine. But I'll say it. Because, I'm a filmmaker. No, this, no, it. this isn't about you. This is, I'm like, disrespectful. So let's let's say Fincher. Yeah. We take a Fincher. He's got a certain vocabulary. Mm. Take a Nolan. He's got a certain vocabulary. You know, like where they have, like, this is, they're they're going to come to a film, and they whether it's social network 
or or one of the more true horrors that Fincher's done, he has certain techniques that he's going to use in every single thing he touches. Mm. And he's actually another one on the list of people will go see a Fincher film. So I at least people like me. Yeah. So, you know, like that on that spectrum, Spielberg's actually stands out to me as somebody who yeah, he'll use he'll use the same techniques and that kind of thing, but he actually is less limited by his own vocabulary from the previous film. I agree. And he really does approach the work of almost blank mm. where he comes he comes to a project. And so if you're if you're looking at his family co-viewing stuff, if you're looking at his uh you know, commercial franchise stuff versus a Saving Private Ryan, or or you can you can just go down the rabbit hole of all all of his projects. He seems to come ready to learn mm. and ready to serve the subject, mm. as opposed to a lot of directors who come ready to be seen and to perform. Mm. Uh, so I don't. It, this could be false, but he seems to me to be the one uh, of out of the greats. If you listed a bunch of Hall of Fame directors, Spielberg's one of those guys where. It's the least about him. Yes. Uh, and I would I would assume that's kind of how you would like to be. But there's also something fun about having a unique voice. And you can't help having a unique voice and 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 having your particular techniques and signatures that show up. So in in that range, like where where would you want to be? So you said I won't be I won't be a Chris Nolan. It's like, do you really want to be a Chris Nolan? Mm-hmm. Like, would you rather if you got to pick one of the great ones, who would it be? Would it be a Spielberg? Um, would it be somebody more distinctive? Would you uh, gravitate more toward the art house yeah. style? Like you're, you're all the all the French references, you know, it's like you you are a student of the genre. Mm. You know, it's like you really do love the medium. So where where would you ideally love to find yourself? So you said you're you're being humble, but you know, and saying I'm not gonna be a Chris Nolan, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh but on the spectrum, like when your name goes on the list. Do you want to be that distinctive voice where people can see if because if I watch not very much of a Taika Waititi, it's pretty clearly a Taika Waititi. If you watch not very much of a Fincher, Wes it's either, Anderson, no it's either right. Fincher or somebody comp, copying Fincher. Uh, Fincher, Wes Anderson, obviously, mm-hmm. they yeah. just become committee. You know, there used to be a thing going around with filmmakers. It was a very funny meme, and it was like a script. Like, have you ever thought about that, or is that something that? No, I mean, yeah, I think the Spielberg mold of filmmaking where maybe after the fact you go, Oh, I like doing long takes. Oh, I yeah. like uh, doing close-ups. You know, it's something that you find out as you discover. I think that's probably more, I think you're just surrendering to the material is the the thing. I don't, you're not just looking around. I'm, I'm Quaron. I'm looking around for, for films that would really need a one shot. Yeah. 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 You know? I do. I, I think there's probably times when you could call about that, but I, I don't feel that draw to put myself on the, subject and on the matter in, in that way yeah. I, I feel it's more like the thing speaks to you and you do different genres and different types of things and you, it's just the obsession with trying to make it as good as possible i think so someone like denny villeneuve is someone i just respect greatly i just love him. yeah not on his filmmaking but what i love his stripping down of the story so he's got the time to build tension and brew tension i think tension's a big thing for me i think with on escape from Victoria, a lot of different types of elements of the story were for want of a better phrase kind of taken out of my jurisdiction and you know you sure. can't have these colors and so i found myself left with tension as being the principal 
thing that I was left alone to play with. Yeah. Um, you know, um, at one point there was a, t a note about quite a serious note about cutting out the Daphne character altogether. And I had to fight for that and write a big essay. And, you know, yeah. so I was like, okay, well, the only thing I'm really not being touched about is tension. And so I really, that's all I've got to communicate with the audience. I've got to use this. Um, I've got to make this film so edge of your seat and so visceral that you have no option but to engage with the character on a nail-biting level. And so I learned a lot about how to do that with sound, with my editor, um, with um, uh, the length of shots, yeah. with the, the, the absence of music and trying to really rely upon sound design, which is something that was a big... Big, close to my heart from before I even start shooting. And so I think whatever happens, those muscles are stronger and I am learning how to do that more and more. So I know I can bring that in a more, uh, when all the chips are down, I know I can provide this, yeah. I can serve this sort of thing. And I think someone like Denny does that in a very elegant and artistic way. I think Spielberg does it in a very elegant, artistic way. I think, you know, Tarantino, you know, does it as well in that way. And, you know, that beautiful long sequence in, um, uh, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, um, that would be the playground that I'm playing in tension, suspense, connection with the audience in a way that you really are invested into what's going to happen to them right now on the screen here and now. Um, that I think lends itself towards more brevity and specificity in the stories rather than, you know, over 50 years yeah. long span. Yeah. It's more like here and now. Feel it. Feel it now. Yeah, and be, connect to it. And yeah, feel it now. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's something that, I, at least in story, um, I am attracted towards um, and move towards tension and building that in the most effective way to engage the so, audience. So uh, when I was looking, connecting this to uh, – on IMDb, you're connected with potential Count of Monte Cristo. Obviously, I know I don't. Who knows what happens with with projects? How would you take that sort of approach, which which is kind of a giant? What do you have some ideas for how, or would you just want to make each section <laughs> really immediate about that? I'm smiling. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a I think a similar conundrum. You know, he's in, he's exiled by his friends. And by the way, there's that's public domain. We can just make Count of Monte Cristo. That's true. If, if you want to just get stuck making escape films, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already, yeah. Well, yeah. Cool. We can just yeah. do that one. This one, you add water. I mean, yeah. that feels, yeah. Yeah. No, that feels very claustrophobic. It's a, it's a step up, you know. So I'm, I'm, and I'm, fiction. Yeah, exactly. you make it. Yeah, you know, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying. Um, also women, more women in the story. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, no women was a problem. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a modern retake. So Bear Grylls, who is, you know, Bear Grylls, the adventurer. Um, he, snake eater. Bear yes, Grylls, snake, snake and yeah. rat eater and such. such, such. Um, he... Um, had come up with this idea of modernizing Monte Cristo um, in a kind of SAS setting. So that's the American version of the SEALs. Um, he uh, was a, a SAS member himself, quite an elite one before he retired. Um, so he's very well trained in, you know, kind of elite combat. Um, and um, he's a believer. And so that's he, his real name. That is, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. I think his first name is something like. Tarquin or something like that, but he's, I think Bear is a middle name, but he's made yeah. that his first name. Um, but yeah, so he um, wanted to make this film, um, you know, with um, the Alexander Dumas and um, with um, uh, Jim Caviezel doing the original Disney version say. in 2002. There's the kind of, I don't know, there's something about hope 
about um, redemption in that story. Less revenge, more hope and redemption. Yeah, maybe. Oh, okay. You know, right. going down and then coming up, you know, de de death, yeah. you know, burial, rebirth. There's something which is interesting. I think um, a lot of people of faith have looked at that book and set and found that, you know, when he, when he goes into the water and he comes out, I think even Dumas has mentioned there's, a, there's yeah. some quasi kind of... Um, it's a hodgepodge. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge yeah. of stuff going on there. And so I think he's found, he's thought, he, Beth saw that as a book as that could be, it wouldn't be a faith-based book, but it would be something which would have a redemptive element to it. And so they watched this game, Pretoria and loved it and came up to me. Um, gotcha. I think in that story, yes, with this desire to update it for a modern SAS retelling, Again, like escape, I think viscerality and immediacy are the things that are important. If you um, chop it into little bite-sized nitbits and yeah. you know little kind of morsels, yeah. you end up with the same problem that you don't feel it. It's I can just get up and fly over here. I can fly to Chateau d'If. I can fly back to you know the, the main town. If you can do that, then what am I doing here? You have to be with him, and you have to really feel it. And so that would necessitate. Um, stripping out a lot of the excess so you have enough time and space on screen to allow the audience to enjoy that down the rabbit hole. He's in prison for 14 years. You have to deal with that. Uh, he spends a whole lifetime trying to chase down, you know, Mon uh, Moncrief and uh, Mondego and uh, Caderousse and all the guys who are against him. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, it's stripping down, stripping down, stripping down. What are the essential core elements that make this film work and then make those elements work in a way that feels timely and ways that feels considered and the way that feels vital rather than quick, you know? And that means, yeah, you'd have to sort of condense a little bit. Yeah. So that's my approach to that. Um, I was writing that one. Now it's potentially a friend of mine who's writing that, um, uh, Johnny Pereira. And so, um, yeah, we'll see how that one goes. But I mean, I, I've got a lot of ideas on how to do that. That's why I smiled. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Do we have questions from? Yeah. Over? I mean, we've touched on most of them. They just enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, but they wanted your thoughts on the gum scene. I think everybody loved the gum Fan scene. Fan favorite. Yep. Yeah. And then also um, the them hiding in the closet with the neat shots of you know, they're barred again in the closet with the light barring. And uh, so basically, do you have any feedback on those two scenes or did you just enjoy them as much as we did? Uh, no, it was a, <laughs> was a lot of behind the scenes. So I storyboarded that um, with my wife. My wife did pretty much all the storyboards in the film. We would sit, put the kids to bed and sit down with a glass of some red wine. And uh, I would write these kind of incoherent chicken scratchings and then she would turn them into you know, no, that's awesome. camera here, higher, you know, closer, da, da, da. and then we scanned that and that became the storyboards. So that was kind of cool. Um, and that was a storyboard sequence. Everything that's in the film is as it was storyboarded. Um, in that sequence specifically, um, to cut a long story short, I had about 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to shoot that whole thing. Wow. Uh, for the gum one? or For the, the gum one. Which is perfect. Yeah. So that's actually how you needed it to be. Exactly. So Dan got a, something shoved in his hand and we dropped the camera to the ground and we had the special lens um, uh, and um, we just kind of shot it and I just did about three takes of each thing. Dan was amazing and I think about a minute after we I called cut, we had to wrap. Otherwise, you know, over time. Um, over time is when you, got, you have to pay all the crew a certain amount of money. So if you go 
four minutes and 50 seconds over, you don't pay the crew. If you go five minutes and one second over, you have to pay the whole crew like $100 each. And you and have to, as a director, you have to motivate the crew to work quickly. Yes, exactly. And they're incentivized to, <laughs> to not work, work quickly. quickly. <laughs> Indeed so. So this was an interesting conundrum. So yeah. I'm herring around shooting and, you know, talking at one billion miles per hour and we got it. And as you said, Nate, it actually was amazing because it, it added, if anything, oh, to the stress. intensity. Yeah, he's yeah. like, get, when he's going, get the thing, he's thinking, I literally have three minutes and this is the last take and I'm reaching my Or we go over budget for the day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we lose a day in money, you know. So it was great. Um, I didn't plan it that way. Um, and I'd been dreaming of that scene for so long, like for two years, I've been dreaming of this scene. Uh, and that happens a lot in filmmaking. You know, you dream no. of it, you dream and dream and dream and dream and dream. And then you've got half an hour because the light's going, <laughs> you know, and you've got to grab it. And if you're prepared, it's great. If you're not, you just, you know, cry. And, <laughs> uh, having said that, it's a side point. My theory, I don't think it's a theory, but, you know, the Finchers, the Spielberg, Your fact. My fact, <laughs> factoid, is I think those top filmmakers, the difference between them and myself is, when they have half an hour to go and the light's going over the hill and stuff, which they do have, all those great filmmakers will have stories of, you know, yep. light fading and so on and so forth. And when I have the same scenario, I think the main difference is the artistic quality of the choices that they make. Get the camera, chuck it on the ground, you know, do this, do that, right? You come here, and the amazing uh, repository of... Yeah. Um, uh, ideas that they have. Yeah. Experience I, and instinct and right. everything. Yeah. That's what makes the difference. I think if you give me half an hour in that condition and you give them half an hour, you'll see the A-class filmmaker um, and you'll see the one who's still figuring things out. And I think that's that's the difference really. It's 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 not really, if you give a, anybody a hundred million dollars and <laughs> loads of time, they can probably eke out something good. If you give them a hundred million dollars and give them a pressure cooker to work in, mm. then I think you see the difference. And so I, I think I would like to be Spielberg in the sense that you could, you could always have a grab bag of amazing ideas, which you can constantly yeah. whip that's up. Cool. That's, that's, that's cool. the skill, I think. So it's kind of interesting. I have that particular moment especially is when when guys can just run over budget yeah and uh, to parallel to your story too the when daniel radcliffe's having a panic attack like he's got the panic attack the director is the one who has to have ice water yeah they have to have ice water in their veins they can whatever anything can be going on in their head like all the full panic attack can be going on but everybody <laughs> looks at you. <laughs> so they're all looking at you to fix it. You know, so I've been, on, I've been on set when I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to direct somebody and they're having a meltdown. Yeah. They, they can't not do it. They cannot say a line and you watch and you feel like the fear and the panic yeah. just kind of like <laughs> pervade creep through the entire crew. <laughs> That's leadership right there. Like That's through awesome. the entire crew. <laughs> and you have to sit there and realize that if I don't fix this, no one will. Everybody else gets to take a knee the whole thing, the you know, it can come off the rails really, really quickly, and yeah. you're you're the one who has to solve it. Uh, a, a friend of mine who is in, in incidentally a SAS listener, a producer friend, has told me that he's had so much trouble training up young talent because there's so much entitlement and desire to self-express and everything else. And he was he was telling me his theory is now what we do is we collect short scripts and then we find the top four or five. And we bring those aspiring directors into a soundstage. Interesting. And we give them a top DP, top crew, and they get to shoot their three pages and you know in one day. And watch them with with everything. Yeah. And then they have to come back the next day and shoot it again. And we take away the DP. 
and a camera. Mm-hmm. And the next day, <laughs> we just keep on taking it, taking it away until we leave them uh, naked alone in the woods with an iPhone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. in the end, but you just <laughs> you, you strip it away, away, away until yeah. they most likely will find the best version. Mm-hmm. Like after a number of losses, mm-hmm. when they start to be confined, when they start to have restriction, when they start to uh, not be able to have anything they want. Yeah. And it turns into that pressure cooker of creativity. And then they will either have the panic attack on the outside. Mm-hmm. It's like, and they'll melt down and say, I can't do it. This can't be done. I've got to walk. And they, they crumple yeah. or, you know, it rages up there and then they find the solution and they're able to stay calm under pressure and, and find something creative. So it, it is really interesting when you have that 25 minutes mm. and you've got to get the key on the bubble gum on the stick. And then that, the fact that that with no one on screen, mm. nobody on camera that desperation is communicated it actually carries through in the performance of a stick with bubble gum on it <laughs> like <laughs> the stick and the bubble gum successfully you know communicates us is is really funny I and mean, it's interesting that that's the case but you were ready for it you had the camera you knew what you were going to do you just had to do it quickly yeah and that that stress helped it did. It helped a lot on camera, and that was a good example of, again, directorial. I thought, hmm, are there, are there other scenarios where I can corral the physical situations? Yes, and somehow have that bleed into the actual film and performance in a way that's positive. So it's, I've, I've got my, you yeah. know, my my brain worrying on that front. But um, you know, there's no music on that. And I had something of a fight. There's not a lot of music in the film. No, there isn't. Um, And even then, there's about 25 to 30% more music than I had originally planned. So when the producers heard the first iterations, it says not enough music, you need more. And I really pushed against it, but I lost some battles. But that one was one where they all said, you must have music. So music was written. And I cheekily and dipped the music out for that section. It was so strong. It was too strong to have music on it, in my opinion. And I sent the cut to the producers and there were some other notes and so yeah. on. So I didn't get any notes about the music, so I kept it. And that was, <laughs> that was, I was going to say, as somebody who has received notes back on like a paragraph in a novel, it's like delete. And then so I expand it into three pages yeah. <laughs> and send it back. That's right. It's like, it does tell you, oh, it's not, something's not working. Yeah. Like it tells you something. Yeah. Uh, but every every reference you've made so far to the producers and even this relationship is something to be new for a lot of listeners. Yeah, like it's like a professional sports team mm-hmm. or something. You might you might be out there on the field as quarterback, but there's an offensive coordinator and there's somebody whose money's on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like and so you're out there battling, but ultimately you're still a hired gun. Yeah, and there's somebody with all this skin in the game. These investors with so much money in play have their representatives. Mm. And one of the things that's interesting about when it works, when it works well, something you said earlier about needing to have different actors all in the room mm. so they can, you know, fight for their characters is very true. Like every character needs an advocate. Yeah. And so you have the script. And while some of them are just egotistical and they want more screen time or whatever, and that can be the motivation of the actor. The, when it's working well, the actors are the advocates for those, char- those characters. They're the advocates for their motivations. They're, they're the one who are like paying the most attention to the logic of their motivation yep. and their through threads. And you have the producers have to defend the commercial viability and they're the advocates for the tens of millions of dollars being spent. And, and then you are ultimately the advocate for the story, the whole thing. Like the, whoever that director is, is the one who's just 
the executive, the chief executive of all of this. But the producers can sit you down and say, Francis, we know you're an artist and we know we, we believe in you for this, but we have this much money on the line and we we need to cut this. We need more music. We need whatever. And that's that dynamic. Then you have to defend the integrity of the film. Yeah. They have to fight for the commercial viability of the film. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of an interesting, I mean, do you think do you think this is the best way that this should that the industry should work? Is there is there a reinvention that needs to happen? Of the whole of the whole system, it's it's but the, the the tension is can produce a lot of good things. There's famous stories of the guys at Castle Rock coming up with the idea for the end of Shawshank Redemption, and they said, "Look, you have to shoot the ending. You know, we'll give you money. The Frank Darabont yeah. will give you money to go and shoot. You know, the ending on the beach." Um, and that was an idea from the studio, which I think Frank was a bit against initially. He said, "No, no, no, we'll pay. Go and do it." Um, and so the studios in theory, if they've got the best interest at heart for the film, can potentially, in theory, theoretically, um, you know, give you ideas that help you to, you know, hone down your vision or make the film better on a commercial or a logical or other type of level, in theory. Um, I think, practically speaking, um, the, in, in recent years, overly produced films have been very negative because they just yeah. they just become committee. You know, there used to be a thing going around with filmmakers. It was a very funny meme, and it was like a script, but written from the perspective of different crew members. So it's like um, uh, the sound recordist writes the script, right? And then it's <laughs> like um, you know, interior bathroom day, and it's just dialogue. <laughs> Wall to wall dialogue, you know, there's no scene. You know, great. And then the um, cinematographer writes the script and it's like, you know, interior, you know, dappled sunlight comes through the <laughs> windows, you know, no words are spoken. You know, they play, you know, and the point it was making is that every department sees and skews yep. the script towards their thing, right? You know, it's yeah. about images, it's about sound, it's about whatever. And so I think, you know, sales agents have a script they've written and producers have got a script they've written and and I think the director's job, and I think the necessity for the director actually, given the fact that everyone's seeing different scripts in front of them, is for for someone to be rallied around who can take all those yeah. disparate things and go, no, 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 the script's about all those things in this. I care about all of you children. Right. Yes. And put them all in, <laughs> yeah. in the right balance, like like a conductor um, with a violin and a, an oboe and a you know kettle drum, and they've got to make it all sound harmonious. So I think directors are necessary. I think if people saw directors as this nexus, as this, this kind of spoke wheel that keeps the whole thing together. And then I think you would listen to directors in a slightly different way, rather than being egotist, which can be the case, but let's assume the best of people, that they're not saying something for egotism, they're saying something because they have a sense that they need second violin sure. to break here because that's yep. about the pain of the music yep. and da 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 So I've got to trust that yeah. no music in this scene is best rather than think they don't know what they're talking about. The, the Nolans and the Spielbergs have had enough time at the plate, as it were, the batting plate to be trusted to some degree. Um, to- and you, you see that actually not always benefit them. Exactly. And so Spielberg's now in a place where Fableman's was fantastic, yeah. but he's not every movie was great. Right. And when you have somebody that power dynamic actually skews, it can be, it can be pretty difficult. And I, so you see that through the Harry Potter series as books. Yeah. You watch the moment when the editors lose any kind of control. <laughs> yes. They don't have a voice anymore. And these things just balloon. And of course, they also have the incentive for them to balloon. Whereas uh, I, I think... What you did, you have 
independent financing and you've got the producers that represent that financing, yeah. but a studio film seems to be a little different. And I think the independent version is, you know, the alignment's all the same. You all want the film to succeed and be excellent. When you're dealing with the studios, the, the person there on behalf of the studio is losing nothing. Mm. Like they have nothing to risk. What they will do is hit you with safe notes for, for the preservation of their job. Yeah. And so they can say things that could be terrible. It could be really, really bad for the film. But in the end, afterwards, when the film has been damaged, that damage has not been signed with their name. They don't have, they're not accountable for anything like that. So famous stories like uh, Brazil, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, like the three different versions and Gilliam's fights. Who were the executives that ruined these different cuts? Nobody knows. It's like nobody, it's just. There's this anonymity inside the system mm-hmm. and the, you know, the giant studio is not going to lose money and it's not this individual's money. Producers who have raised financing for a project that they believe in and are trying to protect that, they, they absolutely need this film to do as well as it possibly can. So, you know, that's where their heart is. Like it's their hearts for the, the, the film and the success of the film, even when there's conflict between yeah. the director and the producers, when it's a studio executive. They're often saying the thing that's safe and easy to say, Mm. and they maybe didn't even watch the dailies or didn't even read the revision because they're busy. And so they're saying just like innocuous platitudes are coming out that that mean almost nothing. Or another studio did a film very similar and it flopped because of these things. And so their eyes on that and saying, we don't want that here. That that is probably the single most, because they they need a variable to hang on to. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I told you that I'd started out at DreamWorks Animation, watching the Ricochet uh, being a story consultant there and watching the ricochet of no talking animals. Yuck. It's like no humanoids yeah. after monsters versus aliens. So let's kill how to train your dragon. Uh, you right. know, it's like, and then let's no more talking animals. It's like just the weird ricochet and yeah. Kung Fu Panda is this golden franchise. Yes, and it's yes, like, yes. but are we doing talking animals? Are we not doing talking animals? What's <laughs> like, what's, what is this? And I mean, you know, isn't it's, it's just trust. I mean, I think, I think you watch the, when golden state warriors lose their trust after the Draymond, punch right. right you know you've watched that same thing if you can trust the people you're working with but trust the alignment of motive mm, yeah exactly. the, the alignment yeah. of motive is huge and so when you're dealing with a studio not all studio execs but when you're doing with an executive what is their motivation their motivation is promotion and rising in the ranks inside the studio yeah they, yeah. they want to do yeah. well inside the studio they don't want to get in trouble and so they're going to give the they're going to give notes that are safe and easy to defend inside the administration. This is where a lot of the virtue signaling comes from. Yeah. So uh, you watch these throwaway lines. I was trying to watch this the show Silo on Apple with with my kids and watching some of the the virtue signaling. It's just dropped in and it's apropos of nothing. Doesn't relate to anything. It just a woman refers to the fact that she had a lesbian relationship twenty five years ago, like a character who's not even in the show. She's just like, yeah, my. <laughs> You know, so that's she, a note. That's the, just a note that got. Yeah, just like somebody's like, "Hey, we need more." Yeah. And so there's somebody just threw in this thing. That's the kind of note that is very safe to give. I feel like I'm I'm now the note giver, and this is actually, I don't know what to say. I don't. I have not paid attention. So yeah. I, I feel like we need some more representation. Yeah, yeah. Is like you can't get in trouble for that. Mm. You can't like if somebody compl- goes back and complains to your boss, it's like, hey, I just said I, I, I said something virtuous. Yeah. yeah. And so the, if that's why I think a lot of this happens mm. is out of laziness and self-preservation of junior executives more than like this big mission to like push a particular agenda. Mm. It's just they'll they'll say things like, can we can we have stronger motivation? What does that actually mean? Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. We could. Yeah. Yeah. I'll turn that. <laughs> I'll just turn that. There's so many things. And sometimes they, you know, they can express it and they can, they can actually communicate it. But yeah. overwhelmingly, I think the independent production side, while it's more, there's, it's more volatile and it's more dangerous mm-hmm. to everybody's careers. I think that's part of why there's a, I, I think it's a little more pure in that the alignment of motive seems, you know, just intact more yeah. effectively. Maybe not the problem solving or the solutions or the proposals, but at least the motive's the same. Well, you, you don't have to, to do anything to prove yourself in that side because the fact that I'm here and the fact that I believe in this and I've got it to this level is my proof. Yeah. Um, and I've picked you and you and you and this IP, this, you know, material. The job is done. Whereas in the studio realm, I think, what I would think if I was in the studio is I would pick the best filmmakers and be like, yeah, you know, my notes would be great, but go and do what you need to do. But can't really do that because I'm getting paid, having much money and I've got a job. So I have to give yep. a note. A script has come in. I must give a note on this. And a note must script. be given. Must yep. be given. And so that's the problem. If you're not allowed. And so my assistant who is actually an intern, right. hasn't even graduated from, from college yet, <laughs> is actually going to give that note. That that's note's coming amazing. from... You know, it, it's mm, yeah. You know, it's pretty wild. Of times, I was I talked to a filmmaker, a writer, a distinguished English writer called David Hare. Um, it's very kind to me, took me under his wing for a while, and he talked about this. About he was very helpful to me. He said, you know, um, I was getting a lot of notes from different places, and we'd go to a studio for Escape from Victoria just a few years back, and they would say, oh, we kind of like it, but you know, these are our thoughts on what could happen. They've not committed any money towards it yet. They haven't guaranteed that if those changes are made, they will 100% nope. give money to it. They're just saying, make these changes. So what and do you And they're do? not accountable to those changes. You make those changes, they'll be like, why did you do that? They don't even remember. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you go off, I go off for three weeks, a month, two months, whatever, and I make these changes. They say no, maybe, or they bluff us or whatever. Now, I've now got a new draft of the script that has now been taken iteratively into a new direction. That is not my direction. That is a response to a specific studio's notes. Yep. And I'm taking that forward to the next studio. So how many times do you do that before what you've got, what you're toting, is something that is a kind of mutation? It's Frankenstein's monster right. and yep. without even needing to be. Right. And I've done that many, 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 Every many times. Independent filmmakers <laughs> had that problem. And so yeah. he said, look... um, I don't take notes of that anymore. The, I only take notes from people who are paying. So if anyone we approach has any thoughts on the script, they must commit potentially financially or at least in some other $500,000 per note. Or something like this. You know, <laughs> I'd say a million, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's not split Sure, you talked me into it. Exactly. <laughs> a million per note. <laughs> but you know, and, it was, and actually I took his, uh, the next day I went um, to uh, the producers and who had some notes from someone and I said, are these guys making it or not? And that day that company bought it. So, you know, it's really good advice. Um, And I'm trying to take that going forward. I'm not taking notes from people who don't have skin in the game. You have to be committed. Otherwise, you end up with this problem. Um, And so, yeah, I think studio execs, you know, I love you guys. Uh Give me a job. Um, (laughs) Nate uh, (laughs) Nate does not. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they, they have to justify that position as the kind of face of the studio to you in a way that an independent producer or an exec does not, an independent exec is bringing money. A producer has brought blood, sweat and tears in the project. I've done what I need to do. I don't need to do some other thing to prove myself. I can just sit and be. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's a problem. I think it's diluting. You can also really quickly have a studio sitting there saying, well, do you have talent attached? And the talent saying, do you have a studio? Yeah, exactly. And 
It just you just go around and around and around. Huge it's, problem. It's, I'm having that now in one yeah, project. Yeah, and it, it's just like, will somebody please just put their toe in the water? And then uh, it's it's just it's really really strange. But I've I've had I've had notes given and notes brawled over. And there's there's some notes you just learn to gauge as like, oh, you're you're probably not going to remember that you ever said that. <laughs> and so I'm just going to not do it. Yeah, because. This yeah. is this smells to me like a throwaway. Like you needed something to say, and you kind of filled the space. Yeah, you filled the air, and there's other things you really care about. But then uh, I've been down the road before where uh, somebody says, "Hey, actually, as an executive with a big studio says we're actually not working with any more cis white males." Interesting. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And then, uh, but he didn't tell that to me. He called yeah. my he called my manager and said that. And then by the time we were like would have taken the next step and had slowed down. He had been fired for being a cis white male. Oh, interesting. And, and so it was it's like, it's and the other thing I've had is like the notes from somebody and then you're like, okay. And you go work for two weeks or three weeks or you crush it. Yeah. You just like really, really try to get something done or a tight turnaround or whatever. And then they've taken another job. You know, it's like the carousel of like, yes, 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 yes. you're like, who do I wait? What? Like, where's this? Where does this go? Or there, it, it's really, really odd. And so I think the the independent filmmaking side, if you can get yourself into a protect a protected position mm -hmm. where you have strength of distribution, mm -hmm. which is the hardest thing to get, is most likely to generate the best film. I think you know, the like, Oscars just, seem to show this. You know, all the Oscar nominated films are all either independent or you know within a certain they're made in a certain space that's not necessarily hyper studio yeah. you know um it's more independent in and we nature. can even just say the good oscars even the ones because there's also the ones that are just obviously tapping into it i think we're supposed to have nominated this <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah there is yeah. that yeah and there's the whole campaigns and um but you know just but even with all of that you know it's interesting that the pool they're working with it's not necessarily massive temple movies it's still 15 20 million dollar movies that are cobbled together yeah. that are totally independent that the quality that I guarantee at least three people tried to kill somewhere. Yes, some somewhere in their life in their lifespan. Yeah. Somebody's like, I think we should shut this down. Yeah. Somewhere, I guarantee you that yeah. that's that's happened for every single one of them. Yeah, it's it's part of the it's part of the that you know you talked we talked about you know quality shining through. It's part of the thing. You know, if you, if the thing can take all of that and it can take all the post near shutdowns and the cast recasting because the actor yeah. wasn't available and some of the money dipped out so you had to move to a different continent you know if it can take all of that and still survive it's it meant to be in some yeah. ways it's, it's, and it's stronger it's, for it yeah in some ways. yeah yeah any uh any parting shots we've talked for a while about this i'm, I'm glad that we've introduced this film i'm hoping we have like a hundred percent participation so if you're a regular sas listener you need to watch the film no, make it happen yeah no i think i think we're good we've we, uh, the final touch of course, is as the podcast is stories are soul food. Do you come back to this, uh, to characters that you've worked with or the movie as inspiration for yourself as you're moving forward or has it been that food for you? This uh, film in particular? Yeah. Yeah. Pretoria. Uh, you know, I just see all the mistakes. There was a, I had a very good lecture, uh, lecturer called. I do too, by the way. We just didn't mention them because we're polite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, I expect I expect that in return someday. Well, it's just never mention the mistakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I had a lecture called, um, um, I forgot his name now, but it's Peter something, um, um, Lowry, I'm sorry. Um, he passed away recently, actually. Um, but he told me of um, what something that he did in that um, 
other cameramen did at the BBC back in the 80s. Um, one of the best cameramen. And they would, you know, shoot a bunch of things for drama or for different things. Back then you would cherry pick between drama and documentaries and they would get you all over the place. Anyway, he would get the footage. It was film footage back then. And once it was developed, he would sit um, in the morning in the BBC viewing room and watch everything he shot pretty much every day that he was shooting something. And he would analyze it, framing. I should have put the backlight here. I should have panned here. Okay, I messed up there. Oh, it's a bit of a wobble next time. And he, he was arguably one of the best you know, camera operators at the BBC around that time. And I thought, ooh, interesting. Uh, you know, that's probably what filmmakers should do. That You know, th th there's something about the non-judgmental observation yeah. of your work to improve it on every possible level. And so I haven't actually watched Escape from Pretoria on my own with that in mind, but I've watched clips yeah. I've come online and I have noticed particularly the bad because I'm, I'm generally a pessimist um, in my view in life, you know, and to see what hasn't worked. And I think there is a lot of value in that in sort of going, where could I have done better? Where did I make a, an error? Which you, the viewer, will never probably see. Um, but in order to get better at your craft, you do that. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, is that soul food? I don't know. But I think there's hopefully a kind of right level of humility in, in self-scrutiny and analysis, uh, not for ego or not for anything like that, but to, to learn and to grow and to avoid making future mistakes. I like that reasoning yeah. um and i think that's probably where i'd go with, with it and, I, and I, I do think this is a film that will leave viewers better than it found them where it's just kind of like it's it's a great meal you know this is this is great and enjoyable meal and yeah. it's not one afterwards where you're thinking like ill i like yeah i feel a little off or like that <laughs> you know it's like no it's it's inspiring in the right ways without it being an inspirational mm -hmm. it's not an inspirational movie but this guy's focus and determination and the execution of it is afterwards you feel fed. Like, yeah, I, I just mm -hmm. had a great meal. And of course, Francis, you zeroing in on the ability to 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 make it so uncomfortable uh, reminded yeah. me even in the funny scene, the, the the funny scene you have with the fat guard. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, even during that, the t intensity is still ratcheted up as we're enjoying. Which is That's very the part real. Of the movie. My ten year old snuck downstairs and was like, "What are you guys watching?" Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the guy yeah. grunts his way up the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a lovely guy, Len Firth, brilliant guy. Yeah, yeah I've, uh, <laughs> found him last minute. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Thanks for joining Absolutely, us. Absolutely, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. And, if, you know, for many reasons, excited about what's next. Yeah. Yes, uh, as am I. Let me know when that's it, what that is. Uh, I'd love yeah, to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone could tell me. It'd be great. Yeah, so, go fight, win. Yeah. Okay. Peace out. Peace. Sass listeners. Peace. I'm here to tell you about a brand new kids show now streaming on Canon+. Plus. It's called Creature Kids, and it's a children's draw-along art show. What is a draw-along art show, you ask? It is a show that shows you step-by-step step how to draw very cool creatures. So for example, on this one, you get to figure out how to draw caterpillars, lions, Great Danes, unicorns, Sasquatches, the Cranky Danky Dragon himself, and many other exciting things. My kids ages three to 10 are currently papering our entire house with drawings from Creature Kids, which features the effervescent Justin Hatcher. So check it out now. I'm going to include the trailer so you can watch that right after I stop talking, or if you're on audio, you can listen to it and imagine how fun and bright and colorful and summery the art is. Starting now.
Welcome to Creature Kids. I'm Justin, and this is my new show, Creature Kids, where I draw the coolest creatures step by step, creating artwork that will cover your fridge. We'll cover it all from rhinos, butterflies, and rattlesnakes to chameleons, unicorns, and the mighty T Rex. Ow! With guest appearances from Forrest Dickinson, illustrator of Hello Ninja, and Sir Battleot and his cranky danky dragon as well as Jessica Lynn Evans, creator of Penguin Set Sail. Plus, you'll get to meet my friends, Cameron the Chameleon, Molly the Dog, and Fitzpatrick the Bearded Dragon. Watch it now on, where is this? YouTube or TikToker? Oh, right, Canon Plus. Thanks so much for drawing with me today. How do you guys think we did? Let's see how Molly thinks we did. Molly. Molly. How we do? We do good? Mm.